Section 32 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 100. Paris, Friday, December the 31st, 1688. Per dunque al nostro proposito. To return then to our proposition. I must tell you, my child, that all the uncertainties of the day before yesterday, which seemed to be fixed by the assurances Monsieur de Lomignon gave us that the King of England was at Calais, are now changed into the certainty that he is detained in England. And if this ill fortune has not befallen him, he has perished, for he was to make his escapement in Bath a few hours after the Queen. So that though we have no certain intelligence of his being arrested, there's not a single person who does not now credit it. Such is our situation, and such the way in which we are closing the present year and entering upon that of 89. A year marked out by extraordinary predictions as pregnant with great events. Not one, however, will take place that is not agreeable to the order of providence, like all our actions and all our journeyings. We must submit to everything and look boldly in the face of futurity. This is going a great way. In the meanwhile, Count, I address myself to you. Yesterday the Knights of St. Michael went through the ceremony with several of those of the Order of the Holy Ghost, at the hour I mentioned to you after Vespers, and tomorrow the rest will do the same. The Chevalier will inform you of how it is managed with respect to the absentees. You will make your profession of faith and give an account of your life and manners. Of this you will be duly informed. You are not the only one, and in the meantime hold off fair and softly. Yesterday, Monsieur de Chevreuse of the Order of St. Michael passed before Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld, who said to him, Sir, you pass before me, which you have no right to do. Monsieur de Chevreuse replied, Sir, I have a right, for I am the Duc de Luynes. Oh, sir, rejoined the other, in this respect, I yield to you. The Gazette will inform you, my dear Count, that Monsieur de Luynes has given this duchy to his son, with the king's permission, and Monsieur de Chevreuse, who will henceforward be called Monsieur de Luynes, the Duchy of Chevreuse, to his son, who will be styled Duc de Montfort. Your son's comrades are highly distinguished by titles. It is said that some troops are to be sent into Brittany with Monsieur de Montmont, Major-General, to be under the command of Monsieur de Chaune. There will be encampments in all the provinces. You need only refer to the map to judge whether we have occasion to be on our guard on all sides. Cast your eyes for a moment over all Europe. Madame de Barillon is very uneasy respecting her husband. Footnote. Monsieur de Barillon was the French ambassador to England. Back to main text. But it is said at random, for no letters arrive, that he is safe, that the chapel of the King of England has been pulled down as well as that belonging to the ambassador's household. Time will clear up all this. But who am I speaking to? Is it still to this count? 
My dear child, your good lady, who swore she would not touch a card till the King of England had won a battle, and will not probably play again for a long time. Poor woman. The Prince of Orange is in London. This is still the subject of my letter, as it is of all conversation, for everyone considers himself as concerned in this great scene. The Queen is still in a convent at Bologna, always in tears at the absence of her husband, whom she passionately loves. Madame de Brignon is quite forgotten. A new comedy is said to be in rehearsal, which is to be represented at Sincere, and is called Esther. The carnival does not promise to be very gay. My son's letters are constantly filled with the most affectionate sentiments for you and Monsieur de Grignon. We expect your letters, but probably shall not answer them till Monday. The Chevalier and I have very long conversations about you. He is tolerably well, and when your son returns from Chalon, he intends to accompany him to Versailles. The good Corvinelli exhausts his rhetoric upon the present situation of affairs, and at the same time adores you. Adieu, my lovely child. I embrace you a thousand times, and wish you a happy year in that of 1689. Letter 101 Paris, Monday, January the 3rd, 1689 Your dear son arrived this morning. We were delighted to see him and Monsieur de Plessis. We were at dinner when they came, and they ate very heartily of our repast, which was already somewhat impaired. Oh, that you could have heard all the Marquis said on the beauty of his company. He first asked if the company was arrived, and on the question whether it was a fine one, this was the answer he received. Indeed, sir, it is. It is one of the finest that ever was seen. It is an old company, and more to be prized than the new ones. You may guess the effect such an encomium must have on a person who is not known to be the captain. Our boy was in raptures the next day at the sight of his noble company mounted. The men made on purpose, as it were, and selected by you, and the horses, cast in the same mould, gave him such high spirits that Monsieur de Chalon and Madame de Noailles, his mother, entered into his feelings of joy. Footnote, Louis-Antoine de Noailles, Bishop of chalon sur marne Afterward, Archbishop and Cardinal of Paris, back to main text. He has been received by these pious persons as the son of Monsieur de Guignon. But why do I tell you all this? It is the Marquis' business. Letter 102, Paris, Wednesday, January the 6th, 1689. I took the Marquis with me yesterday. We began by visiting Monsieur de la Trousse who was so obliging as to put on the dresses of the novice and professor, as on the ceremonial day. These two habits set off a fine figure to advantage. A foolish thought, without considering consequences, made me regret the fine shape of Monsieur de Grignon had not shone upon this occasion. The page's dress is very becoming. 
and I am not at all surprised that the Princess of Cleve should fall in love with Monsieur de Nemours and his handsome legs. Footnote allusion to Madame de Lafayette's romance. Back to main text. The mantle has all the magnificence of royalty. It cost La Trousse eight hundred pistoles, for he purchased it. After having viewed this pretty masquerade, I took your son to all the ladies in the neighbourhood. Madame de Bobacourt and Madame Ollier received him with great politeness. He will soon pay visits upon his own account. The life of St. Louis has induced me to read Meseret. I wanted to take a view of the last kings of the second race, and I want to unite Philippe de Valois with King John. Readers note John II of France, son of Philip, 1319-1364, back to main text. This is an admirable period of history upon which the Abbe de Choisy has written a book that may be read with interest. We endeavour to beat into your son's head the necessity of being a little acquainted with what has passed before his time. And it will have effect, but in the meanwhile there are many reasons for paying attention to what is passing at present. You will see by the news of today how the King of England escaped from London, apparently with the consent of the Prince of Orange. Politicians reason upon this subject and ask, if it be more advantageous for this king to be in France, some say yes, because he is here in security, and will not run the risk of being compelled to give up his wife and child or lose his head. Others say no, because he leaves the Prince of Orange to enjoy the protectorship and be adored, having made his way to it naturally and without bloodshed. It is certain that war will soon be declared against us, so Perhaps even we may declare it first. If we make peace in Italy and Germany, we may apply ourselves with greater attention to the English and Dutch war. This is to be hoped, for it would be too much to have enemies on all sides. You will see whither my rambling pen leads me. But you may easily suppose that all conversations turn upon these great events. Letter 103, Paris, Monday, January the 10th, 1689. We often stumble upon the same ideas, my dear child. I even think that I wrote to you from the rocks what you say in your last letter respecting time. I now consent that it should fly. The days have no longer anything so dear and precious for me as I found them to contain when you were at the Hôtel de Canavale. I enjoyed, I made the most of every hour. I treasured it as a miser does his gold. But in absence, the case is different. Time cannot fly fast enough till the wished-for period arrives. We hurry it along and would willingly dispose of all the intermediate space in favour of the days to which we aspire. It is a piece of tapestry which we are eager to finish. We are lavish of ours and bestow them upon anyone. But I own that when I reflect on the point to which this profusion of hours and days leads me, I tremble. I am no longer certain of any, and 
reason presents me with the image of what I am certain to find in my way. My child, I will put an end to these reflections with you, and endeavour to turn them to my own advantage. The Abbe Tetu is in an alarming way for want of sleep. The physicians would not answer for his intellects. He is sensible of his situation, which is an additional calamity. He is kept alive merely by opium. He seeks for diversion and amusement, and accordingly frequents public places. We want him to go to Versailles to see the King and Queen of England and the Prince of Wales. Can there be a grander spectacle, or one more capable of affording the highest interest? It appears that the Prince of Orange favoured the King's flight. The King was sent to Exeter, reader's note, it was to Rochester, back to main text, where it was his intention to go. The front of his house was well guarded, and all the back doors left open. The prince was not inclined to sacrifice his father-in-law. He remains in London in the place of the king without taking upon himself the title, being only desirous of restoring what he thinks the true religion and supporting the laws of the country without spilling a drop of blood. This is precisely the reverse of what we thought of him. We see him in a very different point of view. Our king, however, acts in a manner almost divine with respect to their Britannic majesties. For is it not being the representative of the Almighty to support a king banished, betrayed and abandoned? The noble ambition of our sovereign is gratified by acting this part. He went to meet the queen with all his household and a hundred coaches and six. When he perceived the Prince of Wales's carriage, he alighted and affectionately embraced him. He then ran to the Queen, who was by this time alighted. He saluted her, talked with her some time, placed at his right hand in his carriage, and presented the Dauphin and Monsieur to her, who were also in the carriage, and conducted her to Saint-Germain, where she found everything prepared for her like a Queen, all sorts of apparel and a rich casket containing 6,000 louis d'or. The King of England was expected the next day at Saint-Germain where the King waited for him. He arrived late. His Majesty went to the end of the guardroom to meet him. The King of England made an inclination as if to embrace his knees, but the King prevented him and embraced him three or four times very cordially. They talked together in a low voice for nearly a quarter of an hour. The King presented the Dauphin and Monsieur to him the Princes of the Blood, and Cardinal de Bonzy. He conducted him to the Queen's apartment, who could scarcely refrain from tears. After a conversation of a few minutes, His Majesty led them to the apartment of the Prince of Wales, where they again conversed for some time. He then withdrew, not choosing to be attended back, saying to the King, This is your house. When I come, you will do the honours of it and I will do the honours of mine when you come to Versailles. The next day, which was yesterday, the Dauphiness went there with all the court. I know not how they regulated the chairs, for they had those belonging to the Queen of Spain, 
and the Queen Mother of England was treated as a daughter of France. I shall hereafter send you these particulars. His Majesty sent the King of England 10,000 Louis d'Or. The latter looks old and fatigued. The Queen is thin, with fine black eyes swelled with weeping, a fine complexion, but rather pale, a large mouth, beautiful teeth, a fine figure, and a great share of sense. No wonder if with all these she pleases everyone who beholds her. Here is matter for general conversation that will not soon be exhausted. The poor Chevalier can neither write nor go to Versailles, which grieves us sadly, as he has a thousand things to do there, but he's not ill. On Saturday he supped with Madame de Coulange, Madame de Bovigneux, Monsieur de Ducre, and your son at the lieutenant's, with the health of the first and second of a drank, that is to say, Madame de Lafayette's and yours for you have yielded to the date of friendship. Yesterday, Madame de Coulange gave a very pretty supper to the gouty gentlemen, the Abbé de Massillac, the Chevalier de Grignon, and Monsieur de Lamoignon, whose nephritic complaints stood him instead of the gout. His wife and the divinities were admitted in consequence of colds, which they never without. I, in consideration of the rheumatism I had twelve years ago, and Coulange for deserving to have the gout. There was no scarcity of conversation. The little man sung, and gave the Abbe de Massiac great pleasure, which he expressed by his admiration, and by imitating the tones and manners which reminded me so strongly of his father that I could not help being affected. Readers note, the Abbe was the son of Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld, back to main text. Your son was at Mademoiselle de Castelnau's. There is a younger sister, very pretty and very agreeable, who is quite to your son's taste. And he leaves the squint-eyed girl to Sansay. He took an oboe with him, and they danced till midnight. This society is very pleasant to the Marquis, as he meets Saint-Hérem, Jeanin, Choiseur, and Ninon there, so that he's not in a foreign country. The Chevalier does not seem to be in haste to marry him, nor does Monsieur de Lamoignon seem very desirous of marrying his daughter. We can say nothing with respect to the marriage of Monsieur de Mirepoix. Footnote. Gaston Jean-Baptiste de Davis, Marquis de Mirepoix, married January the 16th, 1689, to Anne Charlotte Maria de Saint-Nectaire, daughter of Henry Francis, Duc de la Ferte, and of Mary Gabrielle Angelica de la Motte Udoncourt. Readers note the reference is to the fact that Monsieur de Mirepas's bride was twelve years old. Back to main text. We can say nothing with respect to the marriage of Monsieur de Mirepoix. This is the work of Monsieur de Montfort. People seem to be infatuated, or else their heads are turned, but they do not think as they used to do. In short, this man seems impelled by his destiny. And what can be done in such a case? Monsieur de Lausanne has not gone back to England. He has an apartment at Versailles and is perfectly satisfied. He has written to Mademoiselle to have the honour of seeing her, which has given her great offence. Readers note, 
Antonin non pas de commande, Count and Duke de Lausanne was a French military officer and libertine. Louis the Fourteenth had him imprisoned to prevent a marriage between him and la grande mademoiselle, the king's cousin and the wealthiest heiress in Europe. After a rocky on and off relationship, Mademoiselle refused to have anything more to do with Lausanne. Back to main text. I have performed a masterpiece, have been to visit Madame de Ricroix, who is lately returned, very well pleased at being a widow. You have nothing to do but to appoint me to complete your acknowledgments, like your novels, do you recollect? I thank the amiable Paulina for her letter. I'm confident her person would please me. So she could then find no appellation for me but that of Madame. Footnote. It must be observed that the Marquis de Grignon followed this etiquette with his mother, which was the custom among persons of high rank, and particularly in the southern provinces where the Roman laws gave fathers an absolute power over their children, which inspired children with more respect than love, and exacted the forms of submission even in the overflowings of the heart. Madame de Savigny was averse to this false dignity, and it has been seen that she even laughed at her. Laughter who, in speaking of her grandfather, had written to her, Monsieur votre père. Everyone knows the humorous speech of the great Condé before a man who affected to say Monsieur and Madame in speaking of his relations. Monsieur my groom, go and tell Monsieur my coachman to put Mrs. my horses to Monsieur my coach. Back to main text. So she could then find no appellation for me but that of Madame. This is being very serious. Adieu, my dear child, preserve your health. In other words, your beauty, which I so much admire. End of section 32